Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Okay, so this week, our portion in Leviticus is Amor, which is speak. And within this portion is Leviticus 23, which is the chapter that focuses on the appointed times of the Lord. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but I think the main theme for today is about sanctifying God in both Israel and the nations. And we're going to talk about a wide array of things. But, in, okay, so we're going to get into the appointed times. And normally, you know, I mentioned Leviticus 23. That's the chapter that is known for listing out what the appointed times of the Lord are. But in Jewish practice, when the discussion of the appointed times comes up, it's not to start in Leviticus 23.1 or 23.4, because, you know, in, if you were looking in, in, the, in the chapter, um, it, it starts out in Leviticus 23 and says, these are the, the, uh, the Lord's appointed festivals that you'll designate as holy convocations. But then it, then it talks about the Sabbath. And then in verse 4, it says, these are the appointed festivals of the Lord. And it goes through and it lists off Pesach, Shavuot, right? Uh, Yom Teruah and so forth. And so you th- might think, well, you know, 23.1 is a good place to start. 23.4 is a good place to start. But instead, the Jewish practice is to start back in Leviticus 22, verse 27. So back up a few verses. And in that, in that verse... I'm going to read verses 27 to 30. The scripture says, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep of her young and her young on one day. And when you sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day, and you shall leave none of it until the morning. I am the Lord. So that might seem like a strange place to start, right? But as we go through and look at all the appointed times of the Lord, we see two numbers repeated or some combination of these two numbers repeated over and over again, the number seven and the number one, okay? Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit. But when this, in this verse, the scripture says that there's one week must go by Seven days must go by for this offspring. And then on the eighth day, one day more than seven, it may then be acceptable as a sacrifice on the altar. Now, the most common practice was for an offering to be brought between one and three years of age. right? So the, the likelihood of bringing one at eight days was very low. I don't know what the ratio was by any means, but it was not the standard practice. Standard practice was one to three years. But the scripture here says it has to be seven days plus one, eight days old. And so within this, according to the Zohar, the significance of this is that all things must have a Sabbath 
before it can be used for a sacred purpose. So this offspring that was going to be offered on the altar had to have a complete Sabbath before it could then be used for sacred purposes. Okay, and really, when you, and we'll, we'll see this some in next week's portion, everything has a Sabbath, right? The land has a Sabbath. And even the land has Sabbaths of Sabbaths. People have a Sabbath. Animals have a Sabbath. Um, and so it's, it's just interesting to see that that's where the beginning of this goes. And then when we start to look in Leviticus 23, when the Lord is declaring what his appointed times are, he starts out by speaking of the Sabbath instead of going right into here's Passover, right? Because you would think that's the logical thing. Here's your appointed times. You, you know, back in Exodus, I think 12, the Lord said this will be the beginning of the months for you. And then on the 14th day of this month, you will sacrifice the Pesach. And then you'll have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It just seems like that's what the flow should be. But that's not what the scripture does. Instead, it begins with the Sabbath. And the Sabbath declares that God is the creator of all things. Right? It declares that he's the creator of all things. And in six days, he created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And on the seventh day, he rested from his creating, right? And so we've sp- spoken in the past about how on the seventh day, resting is resting from creative works. And resting from your creative work allows you to take, ta- take your hands off of that which you're creating and then just experience your creation without tinkering with it, Okay? So God creates for six days and then he, he makes man and then he rests from his creative works and he experiences and enjoys his creation on the seventh day, which is part of the reason why we desist from our creative works on Shabbat is such that we can enter into a different space that is one of relationship and experience of God and of relationship and experience of one another, right? So we're making room from from all of our normal activities to go into a deeper fellowship. Okay, so let's look at Leviticus 22, 31 to 33. Okay, so the verses that immediately followed what we just read before we get in Leviticus 23 says, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Okay, so as I mentioned before, I feel like sanctifying God in Israel and the nations is a key component of today's message, and these verses really encapsulate it. Because what the Lord says is, you shall observe my commandments and perform them, and you shall not desecrate my holy name. Rather, I should be sanctified among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so within this, as we read what the Lord's communicating, he's saying that in your keeping of my commands, in your listening to what I say and doing it, you sanctify my name. And it's by my commands that I sanctify you. Right? And we're going to go into that in, in greater depth um, here later on. But one of the things, another thing that's mentioned in here is the sanctification of God's name, right? There's keeping of his commandments and the sanctifying of his name. And we know that from Exodus 20, verse 7, 
The scripture says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We often think of this as just being careful with, with saying God's holy name, right? And that is important. And that's part of it. We are to revere God's name and not to treat his name as common. We're to safeguard it. But his name, sanctifying his name is much more than just, say, knowing how to pronounce his name, knowing when to say his name, how to spell his name, any of those types of things, which often result in disputes and conflicts amongst believers, right? It's like, come on, let's move past that. I don't want to call it silly, but let's talk about needless things that divide and let's say, okay, what's the greater aspect of sanctifying God's name? Not to diminish the importance of his actual name, right? But his, a name is more than just a sound or a spelling. A name is a person's character, reputation, right? And things of that nature. Their authority, okay? So if you've ever heard the saying, they're, you know, they dragged my name through the mud, it's like, you clearly don't mean the pronunciation or the spelling of your name, right? You clearly mean they took my character, my reputation, and they just dragged it through the mud. They made me look terrible, right? So, I mean, it, you know, this is common in our understanding, but now let's connect it to the sanctifying versus profaning of the name. Dragging God's name through the mud would be profaning the name, right? But lifting his name high, well, that's going to be sanctifying. And we sanctify God through our words, and through our actions, right? And, and within this, you know, we, we go as ambassadors of the Lord, and we act in His authority, right? Yeshua sent us out in His authority. So He gives us His name, gives authority to us that we might go and represent him well, right? And so through our actions, whether perceived by what others see or, or actual, we can sanctify God's name or profane his name, depending on whether we are acting in righteousness or turning from righteousness. <clears throat> okay, and, and uh, a note that I had here is that, you know, when Israel remains faithful to God, his name is sanctified, and they remain in the land, right? But when they have turned from God and they have profaned his name, then he exiles them amongst the nations in which even that act of exiling the Israel from the land is a profaning of God's name because the, those who are supposed to represent him to the nations have not done as he has called them to do. Okay. So that applies to Israel, it applies to us in our individual lives and to, lives and to us as the body as well. Now, this week's gospel portion, I wanted to read that from Matthew 26. Because in this, this, this gospel reading is connected in many ways to the Torah portion reading. And we'll, we'll take a look at that here. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Yeshua that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? 
But Yeshua remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Yeshua said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Okay. So within this passage, there's a few things. They sought to obtain testimony against him so that they could put him to death. And, and several people came forward with testimony, but they were found to be false witnesses. And then, why, you know, so the first question here is, why could they not find anything credible against him? Because he had lived a life fully obedient unto the Lord, fully sanctifying God's name through his whole life, such that no legitimate ac- accusation could be brought. So then they brought the accusation that he said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days which he did say, right? But he wasn't speaking of destroying the physical earthly temple. He was talking about destroying the temple of his body and having his body raised in three days. And when Yeshua was responding to the high priest, right? the high priest was asking him, do you make no answer? Tell us if you're the Messiah. And Yeshua said, I tell you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay? Within this passage, twice Yeshua sanctified God's name by not using his name directly. Okay? So if you, if you heard this, he said, You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Power being a circumlocution for the name of God. And then say, And coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, Heaven is also a circumlocution for God's name. Often used, um, like in the scriptures where it says, the kingdom of heaven is like this, or the kingdom of heaven is like something other. Heaven being a stand-in for the name of God. So, so Yeshua in his words, in, his, in the way that he conducted his entire life, and in the way that he voiced reverence for God, he sanctified God's name. Okay. Now, another part that ties into this, this week's portion, which we're really not going to read from the portion, but there's many commandments given about the holiness of, of the priests. Okay. And part of the, you know, back in Leviticus 22, I believe, is that it spoke about how the priest is to mourn differently than the rest of Israel. And they're not to tear their garments in mourning for the dead. And so here in this passage, you see that when the priest hears what he calls blasphemy, he tears his robes, right? And so oftentimes, I don't know if you've heard this before, but I've heard it several times in a few different places that the high priest who tore his robes when he heard the blasphemy of Yeshua, was therefore invalidated his priesthood. I don't know if y'all have heard that before. That is an errant teaching. <laughs> um, so the, 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 he is not mourning a death, so he was not sinning in that regard. 
Now, if he was wearing the priestly garments when he tore his garment, then he would have been sinning, right? Because there is a command that the priestly garments will not, are not to be torn. But the likelihood of the high priest wearing his priestly garments in this setting is, well, it's, it's zero. You wear your priestly garments when you serve in the temple, not when you sit in judgment with the council. And even the question is, was this a legitimate trial of Yeshua because it happened in the middle of the night. Now, granted, they had members of the council there. They may have had the whole council there. I don't know. But, okay, it's highly unlikely that the priestly garments would have ever been worn in that scenario. Even in Acts, when Paul is taken into custody and he is being questioned before the high priest and the Sanhedrin in, in Acts 23, uh, the priest asks him a question, Paul responds, and the high priest says to someone else, strike him. So they punch him in the face, I think. Maybe not the face. But anyway, Paul then rebukes him and says, you whitewashed cave, you know, and, and somebody standing by says, how dare you say that to the high priest? And Paul's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were the high priest. Well, if the high priest were standing there in his high priest garments that no one else wears, I don't think Paul would have been confused about who the high priest was. Okay, so the high priest did not wear the priestly garments in these settings, according to what we, the evidence we see here in the scripture. So, anyway, so the priest here tears his garments. He's not breaking the laws of mourning. He's not breaking the, the law of, of uh, tearing the priestly garments. Instead, he's actually upholding Jewish, tradition, Jewish law according to what you, what you are to do upon hearing blasphemy, which is to rend your garments. Okay. Now, so, so I'm just explaining there about that, that teaching because sometimes people will teach that the high priest tore his robes in the presence of Yeshua and by tearing his robes, he, he sinned and he invalidated his position and he totally surrendered the priesthood and made it null and void because he was in the presence of Yeshua who was the true high priest. No, no, that's, that's a mistaken... Uh, teaching, just if anyone's heard that before. If you haven't, it's still interesting to hear. <laughs> okay, so you can just take a few chances every once in a while to try to throw out a few little things to help us as we navigate this path of saying, what do we believe and why do we believe it? Okay, now, so we have the sanctification of God's name through Yeshua's conduct, through his words. Everything was in reverence to the Lord, and Yeshua only sanctified God's name. Okay, so then, just speaking of these aspects, you know, kind of, uh, well, yeah, let's, let's, just, let's go over to Matthew 5, verses 16 through 19. These are, these are famous scriptures in the Messianic movement. But I want to focus first on, on the verse 16. And then verses 17 through 19 will, have, will definitely have something to do with what we're going to talk about more today. But in the same way, let your light shine before others. So Yeshua had just talked about salt, you know, not losing its saltiness, but for people to maintain their good works. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have come 
I have not come to abolish them, but to, to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. Okay, so in this first part, let your light shine before others so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So good works is often used to express acts of kindness or even the keeping of the commandments. Okay, so that others may see your acts of righteousness and your actions in keeping with the commandments of God and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So those who see you holding to the commandments and sanctifying God's name will in turn then sanctify God's name and give glory to him, right? That's the whole aspect of a priest. The priest of the nations, they, they demonstrate the goodness of God and then the nations see and say, wow, this God is good and they give glory to, the, to God. And then Yeshua goes on and says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so if we annul the commandments and teach others to do the same, we end up profaning the name of God because we've called his commandments not true. But if we uphold them and do them and teach that, then we sanctify his name, declaring his word good and keeping it in line with his revealed character. Okay. And within this, there's just a few verses. I don't know if, if I'll read these all. But in John 14, 15, Yeshua said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And in 14, 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Right? Yeshua ties the commandments to faith in him and to love of him. Not, not separating them and saying, these are independent. It's like they go hand in hand. And in 1 John 5, 2 through 3, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You need know, to remember that last line there. And his commandments are not burdensome. Right? Okay. So, and one last one. Okay, fine, I'll read them all. 1 Peter two twelve. I think we read from 1 Peter like every week for a while now. But keep your conduct among the Gentiles or nations honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, you know, we're seeing a theme and a pattern here, right? The commandments are good. The commandments and faith are tied together. Commandments and love are tied together. And the keeping of the commandments sanctifies God's name within Israel and among the nations. All right, and so that's going to bring us into the commandments that we see regarding the appointed times. Now, the appointed times, they're beautiful. And they're a joy to celebrate, right? Now, if you back up 10 years ago, I didn't know anything about the appointed times or the joy of celebrating the appointed times. And when I started to learn about the appointed times, I still didn't know about the joy of celebrating the appointed times. <laughs> it was like a, what am I doing? How does this work? This feels weird. You know, it's, this is outside of my normal arena. But before I came into that, 
or even into any of the understanding of the messianic faith, um, the Lord had a couple of questions on my heart. And the two, there were two questions that were just on my mind, on my heart. And it was, what is covenant and what are God's appointed times? And so I was trying to find out more about these things and I sought out some answers and I couldn't really find anything that was satisfying. And then when, when I guess when the time was right, the Lord just unloaded it on, onto me. And um, well, anyway, it's been an adventure ever since, right? But there's, you know, so why, why were those the two questions? The covenant and the appointed times, right? But within the covenant, there's God's faithfulness and his desire for a relationship with his people. And within his covenant, there are commands that are given to his people such that they would maintain right relationship with him and provide a way that they could, want, they could relate with him, experience him, and then also be that light to the nations. And then there's his appointed times, right? Which his appointed times are what he established from the very beginning as periods of time that he had set apart to bring about his plan of restoration. Okay? Through the appointed times, we see periods of redemption, right? Through Pesach. We see periods of covenantal increase and outpouring through Shavuot. And then we see tabernacles and we see his dwelling presence. Okay? So you have the redemption, the increase in covenant, and then his dwelling presence. And we go through cycles over and over, year by year. And all of these, well, I can't, not all of them. So if we look at the, the spring festivals of, of Pesach and Shavuot, right, we see fulfillment in them of great ways that God has moved in redemption and covenant increase for his people. And then we're looking forward to the day of atonement and of God's dwelling presence in the messianic era, and then ultimately in the world to come, right? But these are, these are times that he's set apart for us to have really dress rehearsals for the coming redemption, and not just to be looking forward to the coming redemption, but to remember what he's done, and in that remembrance of his faithfulness to be encouraged and strengthened, and then through our proclaiming his appointed times, we actually invite others to come and hear and to see what God has done, and understand more of what his plan of restoration is. So let's read in Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. And then the scripture goes through and begins to detail each of the appointed times in the calendar. But again, what we're faced with here in verse 3 is the first appointed time that God mentions is the Sabbath day, which is the weekly Sabbath. It's an appointed time, again, for us to experience Him. And then that's a weekly cycle that we get to have set aside. And then within the appointed times, we have annual cycles in which we get to meet with the Lord and to rest from our work and really encounter Him and give praise and glory to Him 
for what he's done. Now, so I mentioned some about how these are dress rehearsals for his redemption, and, and all of them foreshadow the work of Messiah, right? And, and they all give us a way of understanding more fully the work of God and the work of Yeshua and God's plan. Now in Colossians 2, 17, the scripture says that these are a shadow of what's to come, right? These, the, the appointed times are a shadow of what's to come. And we'll, we'll come back to that verse in, in just a little bit because it's important for us to take a look at these verses. But they're a shadow of what's to come because they reveal the work that Yeshua would accomplish that God had set out for him to do. Okay, <clears throat> now, the Sabbath and the appointed times, if we recall what was read there in verse 23-1, the Lord said, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, these, this is what you're to do. So these commands were given explicitly to the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel. And even though they weren't given to, they weren't entrusted to all men, they still give benefit to all mankind, right? Because Yeshua's redemption that he brings isn't only for the Jewish people because it's extended to all the nations who will call upon the name of the Lord. And then even we see in Zechariah, it speaks of how all the nations during the Messianic era will come up to Jerusalem at the time of Sukkot, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and give glory to God. And even within the sacrifices made during Sukkot, right, there are 70 bulls offered over the seven-day period. And the 70 bulls are said to represent the 70 nations of the earth, such that a sacrifice is made for each one. Provision is made for each nation. And that's part of why Sukkot is known as the Feast of Ingathering. It's seen as the feast in which God will gather in not just his people who are scattered, but also the nations and draw them in. So they're, they're a benefit for all men, for all the earth, for Israel, for animals, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. So then, last week we talked about Acts 15, and how the council at Jerusalem had made rulings for what should be done for the stranger, or for, for the Gentile who has come to faith in Yeshua, and has been grafted into the nation of, into the commonwealth of Israel. And they said, okay, we're going to set out these four rulings, or these four rules for them that they're to follow. Okay, so stay away from things contaminated to idols, stay away from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Okay, and then they said, for Moses is taught every Shabbat in synagogues and all the nations. Okay, so as we discussed last week, what they were giving was a starting point for people coming to faith in Yeshua to say, okay, you've moved from a stranger who is separated from the covenants of God, and yet now you've moved into a higher status, a status that goes even beyond just a God-fearer who lives around Israel, like the stranger who dwells among Israel. You've actually now become grafted into the nation of Israel, and you've become partakers of the covenant. And in doing that, their ruling was, at a minimum, you need to uphold the commands given to 
the stranger who dwells among Israel, and here is where you start. And every Sabbath you're going to come and you're going to hear the, the Torah taught and you will learn and you will grow along the way. Now, immediately even within that, <clears throat> even within that statement there in Acts 15, they said, for Moses is taught every Shabbat. Their immediate assumption was that those who are coming to faith in Yeshua were going to join in on some level to participating in the Shabbat, right? Because they were going to set aside time on Shabbat to come and encounter the Lord, be in His presence, worship Him, learn His word, and be in community. Because for someone who, who has been a pagan and has come to faith in God, how are they going to learn about God unless they are around those who know about God and can actually teach them? How are they going to learn to walk in His ways if they don't have anyone to look at to see, how do I walk in, in his ways, right? And so the idea is they're going to come every Shabbat. They're going to learn. And as a part of the community, now that, you know, with these, with these rulings that were set out, these four rulings, they removed barriers to fellowship. They removed barriers that would keep the, the Gentile believers from being in fellowship with the Jewish people who they needed to be in fellowship with to learn and to grow. So they removed that barrier, and now they're going to come and be a part. And then as you go through the year, you're going to encounter the other appointed times of God. You're going to encounter Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, because that's what your community is going to be doing, right? It's not, it's not uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say here is that even though the command was not given to the stranger who dwells among Israel, right, to keep the festivals, it was given to Israel, and now you have believers coming into faith and being part of the community, it's only reasonable that they would then walk in keeping the appointed times to be in fellowship with their community rather than say, yeah, I'm not really interested in that work of redemption stuff. I've got Yeshua. Like, what? <laughs> Don't you see they're one and the same? <laughs> Which is the whole Colossians thing of saying, but the substance and the body belongs to Messiah. Um, and so it's, yeah, so that's what, would, what, that's what would be happening is that believers, Jew and Gentile, would be celebrating the appointed times with one another. And, you know, oftentimes we do get caught up. And, and these are good and valid questions, and we need to do them to say, okay, what are the commands? Who are they for? Um, what should I be doing? You know, all that stuff we need to investigate, and we need to understand. The Didache, okay, the Didache. The Didache, it's, I've, I've heard it said in different ways. It's pronounced in many different ways. But, but the Didache uh, is a writing that was given to well, was given to the Gentiles. It was the teachings of Yeshua to the Gentiles. It's, a, it's believed to be a first century document that would have been written sometime after the council at Jerusalem. It may have been written in the same time period that Paul was writing his epistles, but the, the majority of scholars believe it was a first century document but it was written explicitly to say, Gentiles, here's what you're to do. Here, as you're, as you're coming to understand, here's the way you need to walk. And it starts out in saying that, uh, 
I can't remember. There's, there's two ways, life and death, and, and one way is greatly different than the other. <laughs> I always thought that was pretty funny. It's like, yes, there is a great difference between life and death. And, uh, but it goes through, and it, it has a lot of the teachings that you'll find in the Gospels, you know? But then specifically, in chapter 6 of the Didache, I want to read what this says. Because this, this was in first century teaching given to Gentiles about what should you do. And it says, See that no one causes you to err from this way of the teaching, since apart from God it teaches you. For if you are able to bear the entire yoke of the Lord, you will be perfect. But if you are not able to do this, do what you are able. And concerning food, bear what you are able. But against that which is sacrificed to idols, be exceedingly careful. For it is the service of dead gods. Okay? So the encouragement here that was given to first century believers in Yeshua who were from the nations was do everything you're able to within the Torah. But they weren't, they weren't circumventing what the council had said at Acts 15 because the council at Acts 15 said start here and come learn every week. The Didache says do, and do everything you can. But don't let this become like a, a crushing burden, but do what you are able. And then they said, and concerning food, bear what you're able. So are you able to do, are you able to do all of the, uh, the aspects that are, are the rules for kosher eating within Israel? Yeah, then do it. But if you're not able, don't. Okay? So, <laughs> um, so there is a distinction that's shown here in this document between the native-born Jew or the Gentile who has come to faith in Yeshua. But there is clearly a, a call to, uh, to learn the Torah, to walk according to the Torah. Okay. And all this falls in line with Isaiah 56, which actually I thought I was going to read from last week. I didn't do it. Um, but these passages are great. So in Isaiah 56, verse 1 through 8, the scripture says, Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a, m a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Okay? So within this passage, you see God highlighting the importance of those who are going to seek his name, sanctify his name, and revere him. Would hold, they would honor and keep his Sabbaths and hold fast to his covenant which his covenant, of course, is tied to his commands. But that he would take them and they would be acceptable to him and that they could, they, he would make it so they could come 
be acceptable before him and that his house will be called the house of prayer for all the peoples. Right? So I know I'm harping on the aspect of the commandments stand. They are valid. They have not fallen away. They will not fall away until heaven and earth are completed. But that's because I also wanted to go into Colossians 2, 16 through 17. And I find it funny that we're going into this because we actually, uh, in a discussion after service last week, this topic came up. Um, And I had no intention of going and then talking about this as a result of that. Rather, all these parts just kind of started to come come together as I was thinking through things and studying the Word this week. And I was like, you know, Lord, I don't even see how this ties to the, uh, the portion, you know. And then, then I went and read something. The next thing I read showed me exactly how it tied to the portion. And I was like, okay, all right, I guess I wasn't just having rambling thoughts. You really were taking me here, right? <laughs> but so Colossians 2, 16 through 17 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Messiah. Okay? Which is actually even, verse 17 is even a funny translation. It's unclear exactly what the translation of that should be. The wording in Greek is is a bit funny. It actually could be, and the substance is of Messiah. Right? So if you were to reread this and say, with regard to festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, these are a shadow of things to come. And the substance is of Messiah. And the substance of these things is Messiah. Right? It's like, oh, that sounds a little bit different than some translations that I've read that say, these are mere shadows, but the substance really belongs to Messiah. What is it? Do we have the... Okay. But the body making the shadow is of the Messiah. Yes, absolutely. Because it's the work of Messiah, which has been foreshadowed in the appointed times. Right? And then we get to see those, and by seeing those and studying them and learning from them and practicing them, we actually get to see more clearly Messiah and the work of Messiah. So that's a great translation. Yeah, so here's Paul. Last week, we affirmed that the writing of Paul is confusing and often distorted according to the Scripture. Okay? <laughs> and... Uh, and so, yes, we acknowledge that his writings are confusing. And one of the things that we need to take into consideration, every letter, save Romans, Paul wrote to people that he was in fellowship with and community with and had context and background to all he was writing, such that whenever he wrote, he didn't try to explain everything to the full extent such that they could learn from scratch and now build up a full firm theology. Instead, he's saying, you already know what I've told you before. Now I'm just, I'm adding this. This isn't in conflict with what I've told you before, right? But if we just pick this up and we were to read these verses, we would say, okay, well then there are no rules for us according to what we eat, what we drink, how we celebrate, uh, whether or not we keep Shabbat, all those things we could come up with saying these are just mere shadows. Yeah, they, not needed, right? But That's not what he's saying. Um, For one thing, the idea that the Torah, the idea of the Torah being canceled is foreign to Scripture. 
It is not consistent with what we have read in the scriptures today about the commandments of God and how they endure and it's easier for one jot or tittle to fall away or either for easier for heaven and earth to fall away than, when, than for one dot of the Torah to fall away. Okay, but rather this idea of the Torah being canceled or any parts of it falling away are, have been interjected by man and their own creation of, of theology and how things work in the redeeming work of Yeshua. For one thing, um, yeah, I mean, really just imagine someone coming into our community, right? And they come in and we're teaching them all about Yeshua and we're trying to be one big family and we say, no, 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 don't, don't do the appointed times, you know? Uh, they're just a mere shadow of things. We're going to do them, but, you, you know, don't do them. They're not really important. It just wouldn't make sense. What is it, Richard? Yeah, so what Richard just, just said is that these verses have to be understood in light of verses 20 through 23 here in Colossians 2, which says, if you have died with Messiah to the elementary principles of the world, right, the elementary principles of the world are not going to be the Torah, okay? But anyway, elementary principles of the world be more like the law of sin and death or the pagan practices then why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Those statements are not referring to commands in the Torah. They're, command, they're referring to, to practices of the nations and pagan practices, which all refer to things destined to perish uh, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Okay? Commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So, and that is a key statement that does shed light on what, what Paul is saying. Um, okay, so the good news that is represented in the appointed times are good news for the Jews and for the nations. And so we are invited to come delighted to come, really, and to celebrate those things. Okay, so, um, and then if we want to look back at even the first part of that verse, like where it says, don't let anyone judge you according to food or drink. It's like, that ought to throw up red flags because that goes against what the council at Jerusalem said in Acts 15. They said, stay away from food contaminated by idols. Stay away from blood and from things strangled. Well, if Paul says they can't judge you according to food, then he's saying that you need to rebel against the council at Jerusalem. It's like, man, that is not a good thing. I don't believe Paul taught any form of rebellion. If he did, his writings do not belong in the Bible. That might freak a few people out. But I don't believe that, his, that he was rebellious or teaching against the council or teaching against the commandments of God. And if he were, he's refuting the words of Yeshua too. Who are we going to listen to? Paul or Yeshua? I'm going to listen to Yeshua, you know? Um, anyway, I still, I like Paul. I like you, Paul. And, but his words have been twisted throughout time. To the point where I at times wonder if he had known what the church was going to do to his writings, would he have written them? 
I don't know that he would have. Maybe he would have, right? Because man is accountable for what man does, right? What is Dan? I was just going to say this very, very desire to change his mind. Whoa. Um, why, why would Paul or anyone come along? I mean, they're presuming everything part of this is absolute, is true, is eternal, the word of God like we read in Psalm 119. Yeah. And you had that unexpected pause because of the microphone, but I thought, whoa, that was God. He wanted us to just pause there that the word is eternal. Think on that. You know, yeah. this is not going away. But you have all that. Why then would there be any writing at all from Paul or anybody to say anything like, always oh, changes his mind now that... That's not for today or... Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's simple, but it's... Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, that's one of the things that, uh, that, that ties in directly with something I was going to note. You know, Yeshua said, heaven and earth will pass away, you know, before anything falls away from the Torah until all is accomplished. And, and within that, you know, even in the scripture we read earlier, he said those who teach that the least of these are done away with will be least in the kingdom. And those who teach, you know, and uphold them will be great. Now, think about this. The, the command to observe the Sabbath is given over and over in scripture. I don't know how many times, but it's at least a dozen times. Okay. And in, in the Brit Hadashah, right, in the Gospels and the Epistles, how many times does it say don't keep the Sabbath or the Sabbath is no longer the seventh day? Big goose egg when you sum up both of those, right? So how do we go, you know, how can you go from a command is given to now it's gone without anything that says it's gone? And when Yeshua says that if you teach against the least of the commands, you'll be least in the kingdom, it would have been really good then to say, you know, if, if some of them were going to go away, it'd be say, hey, these are the ones that are going to go away. <laughs> Right? Because if it's an important thing about, you know, really your place in the kingdom, then some instruction ought to be given rather than just conjecture of, well, I think these are gone away and these still stand and these are gone away, but these still stand. It's like, no, there's no room for that. The Torah does not fall away until all is accomplished and all won't be accomplished until the end of the messianic era. Um, so... Uh, there's one other thing, and I guess I've ram rambled for a while because we're getting we're already at our time. But there's one other thing I wanted to go through in Mark seven. I think this is an important thing with regard to the aspect of the appointed times and what uh, what we do, how we carry things out. In in Mark seven, the fair okay. So Yeshua's disciples have been eating with unwashed hands. And the Pharisees were upset with it because they weren't following the tradition of washing hands before eating. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Okay, I'm not going to read the rest of it. But Yeshua rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes 
for holding their traditions in higher regard over the commands of God. Okay? And I know that, you know, in the past when I've read that, I'm like, yeah, get them, you know, of like the, get those Pharisees, right? But I wonder what Yeshua would say if he came today to the church and said, you keep your traditions of men, which aren't accounted for in the Bible, and, set, and rightly set aside my commands. Why do you set aside the commandment of God so that you can hold fast to your traditions? Because that's exactly what happens when, when the church says, well, we're going to do Easter and Christmas, but we're not going to do unleavened bread, Shavuot, tabernacles, Day of Atonement. It's like, I've got these traditions we've made. I know the commands of God. Well, Paul said, don't worry about the commands of God. We get to do Christmas and Easter, right? I think Yeshua would have a rebuke. That Mark 7 passage would not be to the Pharisees and the scribes. It would be to the majority of the body of believers today. So, you know, apart from the appointed times, there are no celebrations unto God other than traditions of men. That's my biggest grief with Christmas and Easter. Not even going to worry about the question of are they pagan? What are their roots and all that stuff? Let's just get back to the thing of, hey, they're, they're a tradition of man that people do in place of God's commandments. There. It's a problem. Okay? So, there. I've expressed my grief. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, now, just wrapping up here. We sanctify God's name by keeping his commandments. We sanctify his name by proclaiming his appointed times in their season because they declare his great works and they declare his purposes that he's set aside in restoring all of mankind, right? So that others can see it and say, wow, this God is great. Look at the wonderful salvation he's brought and look at the Messiah revealed in them and can come and glorify our Father who's in heaven, right? And... There's, uh, in Deuteronomy 4, 6, I love this passage because it speaks about the beauty of God's commands and the importance of doing his commands. Moses had said to uh, the children of Israel, he said, keep them and do them, speaking of the commandments that that he had laid out for them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So when the nations hear the commandments of God and see the beauty of what he's done, they will say, surely this is a great nation, wise and understanding. But if we believe that God's commands and his times are all done away with and thrown aside, how will the nations ever look and say, look at this wise, wonderful people and who has a a God so near to them as this God? They won't. So it's, it's really a profaning of the name to set aside the commandments, to set aside the appointed times. So we're called as believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, to sanctify God's name in our words, in our actions, in everything that surrounds us so that we're a light to the nations, so we don't lose our saltiness, so that others will see God and glorify him and come in to the fold and receive of the salvation and the restoration that he offers. thank you Rachel wherever you are (laughs) oh man amen Um, so let's let's pray and then of course like we did last week if people want to talk afterwards 
and let, let's talk afterwards, but we're getting close to the time to need to go get our children. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your love. We thank you that your word is true. It is eternal. Thank you, Lord, that your word is wisdom, that it is your revelation to us, the guidepost that's to lead us to Messiah, not just to lead us to know who Messiah is, but to lead us to become like Messiah. Lord, I pray that your word would stir, stir in our hearts, Lord, that we would seek after you diligently, Lord, and that by our actions, by our words, we would sanctify your name and that others would come to behold your beauty and your glory and believe on the name of Yeshua. We thank you for your love and your goodness. We ask your blessings and peace and ask for you to strengthen us to be loving and kind and uh, gracious with others, Lord. We bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.